Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to hear some of the conversations that have uh, been presented on JM in the AM over the last few days. Uh, this edition of JM Rewind will concentrate on Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaShoah. First, Nefesh Benefesh staff member Benji Davis joined us to discuss the uh, Nefesh Benefesh ceremony that's going to be taking place in honor of Israel's Memorial Day, Yom Hazikaron, one that you could access from your very own computer. With that conversation, here we go on JM Rewind with Benji Davis of NBN, Nefesh Benefesh, here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, Nefesh Benefesh and uh, JNF are hosting an English-language Yom Hazikaron Tekes. On Tuesday, April the 17th, remember, Yom HaZikaron, Israel Memorial Day this year, is Wednesday the 3rd of ER. Keep that in mind. So Tuesday night, they have an English language, Yom HaZikaron Tekes, 70 years of remembrance. It starts at 7 p.m. We are not only encouraging people in Israel to attend, we're encouraging people around the world to check it out Live, and we'll explain all that coming up. It'll feature Deputy Minister Michael Oren, Rabbi Yoshua Fass, founder of Nefesh Benefesh, Sherry and Seth Mandel, Staff Sergeant Shachar Elbaz, and Chazen Avi Gans. They are all part of the uh, program that evening. Benji Davis is with us live via telephone. Benji Davis is uh, Israel Program Manager for Nefesh Benefesh. Benji, welcome to JM in the AM. Hi, how you doing? Baruch Hashem, well. Baruch Hashem, all is good. We are getting ready. We've been focusing a lot this morning on Israel 70. We're getting ready for the big celebration next week. But before we get to that, there are a couple of days that we have to acknowledge. One of them, of course, is Yom HaZikaron. Starting on Tuesday night next week, going through Wednesday, is Israel Memorial Day. We get an opportunity to remember the soldiers and, of course, terror victims who have given their lives for the state of Israel and for our present and future. And tell me about the event. Is 70 what led you and uh, you at Nefesh Benefesh and the JNF to get together on this? Is this because of the quote-unquote milestone year that we're now commemorating? So it's uh, Nefesh Benefesh and um, actually the Karen Kamet Israel in Israel um, and not the Jewish National Fund. Um, it's, uh, we have a partnership with Karen Kamet Israel that, that started recently, and so we've had an uptick in programming in Jerusalem uh, in partnership with the KKL, uh, and that, uh, coupled with uh, a couple other factors, which is in the last few years, we've noticed um, that there isn't anything in English going on on this really important day. So actually two years ago, as a part of my role in running programming, uh, we did an event the night before Yom Zikaron, and we honored the, the three boys and had Naftali Frankel's dad, Avi, come speak, and we showed the film about the three boys. And then last year we did a, a tekes uh, in Jerusalem anticipating 200 people, and, and 600 people came. We had to take on another hall and live screen it to the other hall. What? And uh, we had Yehuda Avner, daughter, and we showed the movie The Prime Ministers. And so this year... Uh, with you know how big it is at 70 years, and and seeing that there is a big desire within the English-speaking Oleg community to to be a part of Israeli society, but maybe doesn't have the access to the language or the army experience and the the community of of where to go to. That nefesh benefesh and, and building community and, and providing these types of programming, we had an opportunity here um, 
you know, with that partnership with KKL that I was describing to do something really big and to, to have VIP speaking. And, you know, we're going to have 1,500 people in the heart of Jerusalem, uh, major, major serious techists, uh with Deputy Minister Michael Oren, Rabbi Fass, um, Sherry and Seth Mandel, uh, and, and a, a lone soldier, uh, Sahar Elbaz, who received the Bonation Prize actually a few years ago. Unbelievable. All right, uh, and I'm glad you pointed out about KKL. You know, when it, we saw English language, we automatically thought it was part of your relationship with uh, JNF. This is, as uh, as Benji just pointed out, Nefesh Benefesh and Karen Kayemet Israel together hosting this English language Yom Hazikaron Tekes. It's happening Tuesday night. In Jerusalem, at the first station hangar in Jerusalem, beginning at 7 p.m., it's 70 years of remembrance. And as he just mentioned, the lineup includes Deputy Minister Michael Oren, Rabbi Fass, Sherry and Seth Mandel, Staff Sergeant Shachar Elbaz, and Chazen Avi Gans. All right, now, why is this so vital or important to bring to the English-speaking public outside of Israel? And I believe the answer is because we could actually access this. Am I right or wrong? It's the same reason of why we're doing it. Um, and there's, you know, the Zionist idea is right, the, the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. Um, but I also see it as a part of the connection of the Jewish people to their homeland. Uh, and Nefesh Benefesh, you know, we believe that we're, we're a bridge. Uh, and some people, you know, cross the bridge and come and live in Israel. But especially with a lot of your audience, you know, we keep that connection alive. Uh, and we keep that a connection alive, I think, you know, by, by the inspiration of what's happening in Israel, by visiting, but by also for these days that can kind of seem kind of difficult to connect to, you know, Yomazi Karon in, in New York, you're still going to go to work, no one else is commemorating it, so how can you connect to it? Well, you know, thought, okay, we're going to have this tech test, it's going to be 1 p.m. on the East Coast. You can, you know, watch it on your, you know, have your lunch break at work and feel this little connection into Israel. But I think it's a little bit more personal than, let's say, you know, a, a bigger ceremony because a lot of um, American Jews, they know Olim that have moved there, their cousins, their aunts and uncles, their sons. Um, and this is a ceremony for these people. So it's not just, oh, because I'm a Jew, I'm connected to Israel. I, I also see it as a personal connection between American Olim, you know, and our family and our, and our communities back back in the States. Uh, it's a unique opportunity for everybody really around the world to participate in that way. All right. Uh, on the website, and we'll give the web address in a minute, on the website, those who want to register and, and be there live and in person have an opportunity to do so. Uh, what do people need to know who want to watch or who want to uh, uh, you know connect with this event from thousands of miles away? Um, we invite everyone just to go on the Nefesh Benefesh website in a few minutes. Uh, by 7.45 uh, would be a good time to log in. We're starting at 7.55, which is five minutes before the siren, and there's that two-minute siren uh, exactly at 8 p.m., and if people really want to feel the effect and feel a part of being in Israel, it definitely be logged in. And all you have to do is go to our Nefesh Benefesh website. You can type that into Google or nbn.org.il. It'll be featured on the homepage. And the, the, the ceremony will be lasting about an hour. It'll include some, you know, montages. We're going to have music sung um, uh, by, by Cantor Avi Gantz, um, you know, speeches from, from Michael Oren, Rabbi Fass, and the other speakers. Uh, and it, it will really, you know, I think to really to that touch point to, to that that connection that you know we're all we're all in this together and to kind of understand that you know the state of Israel wasn't given to us on a, on a silver platter whether it's 
Jews living in Israel or Jews outside of Israel, and that we've all, you know, there's so many that have made a sacrifice, and it's really 70 years to remember that, that sacrifice, no matter where you find yourself. No question about it. All right, Benji Davis has the message. The message is from Nefesh Benefesh and from Karen Kayemet Israel on, uh, on Tuesday, on the eve of Yom HaZikaron, Israel Memorial Day, participate in the English-language Yom HaZikaron Tekes, 70 Years of Remembrance, Tuesday, April the 17th. You could be there for the program that starts at 7.55 Israel time at the First Station Hangar in Jerusalem. Go to the web, and we'll give you the address in a minute, and you could register. If you're not in Israel, you'll be able to access the Nefesh Benefesh website, nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. We suggest you go to that address at about 1.45 p.m. Excuse me, 12.45 p.m. would be 12.45 p.m. On uh, on Tuesday, 12.45 in the afternoon. A few minutes later, as Benji mentioned, the siren will uh, commence. Israel will stand for two minutes in silence, commemorating uh, the memory of those who have fallen uh, over the last 70-plus years, both uh, in war and in terror attacks. And after that, the formal program will begin at uh, 1 p.m., just after 1 p.m. Eastern time. And all of that this coming Tuesday at NBN dot org dot il nbn dot org dot il and of course we'll remind you between now and then as we get closer and closer the event is being presented in cooperation with the Mizrahi World Movement the web address is as follows nbn dot org dot il slash yom dash hazikaron dash twenty eighteen again that's nbn dot org dot il slash yom dash hazikaron dash 2018. And when it comes to Tuesday in the early part of the afternoon, you want to just go to the Nefesh Benefesh website and you'll be able to participate in that way in the ceremony. Benji, this is a great event. It's a great event because it really keeps us, everybody around the world connected. Obviously, it's a great event for those in Israel as well. But I'm more concerned, frankly, right now in my role to make sure that people around the world are connecting with Israel on a day like Yom HaZikaron. So, Kalakavod to you, Nefesh Benefesh, Karen Kayem at Israel, for bringing this to the world Jewish public. Thank you, Nachum. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Good luck on Tuesday night, and thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Have a good one. Benji Davis, Israel Program Manager at Nefesh Benefesh. Again, we'll remind you as we get closer, Tuesday, April 17th, just around 1 p.m., the formal ceremony with the siren from Israel will begin. And that is when everyone should be logged on to nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. Let's make this a Yom HaZikaron uh, that really stays with us for a while, that pierces our heart and reminds us about the sacrifice made for the founding of the State of Israel and for the maintenance, the maintaining, the sustenance of the State of Israel. That was my conversation with Benji Davis about the upcoming Israel Memorial Day ceremony that's going to be taking place in Israel that you'll be able to watch from anywhere around the world. Uh, we've had a um, we had an interesting JM in the AM Yom HaShoah commemoration recently, and um, the next three interviews on JM Rewind will be um, interviews that took place on Yom HaShoah. We're going to start with uh, Stanley Stahl. Stanley Stahl is the uh, leader of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. And here is the conversation we had with Stanley Stahl, Anya Mashawah, on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Stanley Stahl, who is named for her uncle, 
is executive vice president of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. JFR continues its work of providing monthly financial assistance to some 350 aged and needy righteous Gentiles living in 20 countries. Its Holocaust teacher education program has become a standard for teaching the history of the Holocaust and educating teachers and students about the significance of the righteous as moral and ethical exemplars. For information, jfr.org. Stanley Stahl, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. At what point did this incredible concept of righteous Gentiles during World War II saving Jews, at one point uh, was it decided that the support of those righteous Gentiles should become an organized effort under the banner of JFR? The point came when Rabbi Harold Schoys, the blessed memory, who is from New York but was in California, and he met a righteous Gentile. And he realized the Jewish people have a double memory, a memory of evil, but a memory of blessed righteousness. And then he learned, he, he did research, and he realized that most of the righteous continue to live where they save Jews, most behind what we know is the former Soviet Union or behind the Iron Curtain, and many were living in poverty. And he felt the Jewish people, Claudius Roel, had an obligation to repay a debt of gratitude to these men and women who risked their lives and often the lives of their families to save Jews from death. Many people save total strangers. Yeah, you know, I, I've i met over the years, well, dozens actually would be too many, but but certainly a handful of people who literally, on at least an annual basis, if not more often, will deliver gifts and thank yous and, and be in touch with people during holiday season who literally saved their siblings, their children, uh, who, or saved other family members during the Holocaust. I just never realized that there was an organized effort to recognize these people and help those who are in great need. The organization was founded in the late 80s. I've been with the organization since 1992, hmm. so I'm in my 26th year. At our height, we were funding 1,850 Hasidei Ha'umot Ha'ulam, Righteous Among the Nations, living in 34 countries. How do they react? What happens in a typical situation when someone like that realizes that you and the organization are ready to pay tribute to them, to repay them, so to speak? Most of them, in order to be recognized by Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Authority, you needed to have done the rescue for pure altruistic reasons. Not that you got paid. It was, yes, I'm taking you in because it's the right thing to do. Right. And so most did not expect any reward then, during the Shoah, or now. And many do not ask for help. We just started funding a 98-year-old man (laughs) who lives on Collins Avenue in Miami Beach, a Hungarian rescuer, and he was recognized 20 years ago. He didn't need the money. He's 98. He needs the money for medical care. So he was our last person that we just started funding. And he says, I I don't need it. They're too proud. They'll get by. And they're in their late 80s, 90s, and we have rescuers in their hundreds. You know, 101, 102. Stanley Stahl is with us, Executive Vice President, Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. I assume... uh, 
I, I assume there has to be some rescuees affiliated with the organization, some people that were actually saved. Am I right? There are. We, as some of our volunteers are men and women who were saved. Unfortunately, like our survivors, um, some of those that were rescued have, have, have also passed on. Right. But we, we still see them because we try to do a reunion every year where we re- reunite the Jewish survivor and the person who saved um, the Jewish survivor. And they haven't seen each other since the end of the war. How many times in the last 25 years have you asked yourself, would I do the same thing? Um, often at my <laughs> shul, I was very active in social action. I have an adopted son. Wow. And if, I li- if you lived in Eastern Europe, not necessarily Western Europe, and you were caught helping a Jewish person or hiding a Jewish person, the penalty was death for you and your family. And there's one thing to make a decision for yourself, but for your family, your children, and in... And during the war, many generations lived together. So you had grandparents and parents and grandchildren living together in the same apartment or house. And you, at, when, I t- when I first started working in 1992 for the foundation, Shabbat dinner conversation was, what would we have done? And you'll never know until one is tested, and may we never be tested. Amen to that. Speaking with Stanley Stahl, Executive Vice President, Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. I hate to put you on the spot, yes. but is there one story of rescue that stands out for you? One that's just so remarkable or in some way yes. stands out? There's one story. The rescuer is a blessed memory, Jerzy Belitsky. And he was in the first transport of Polish politicals to Auschwitz in June of 1940. So that meant his number was a low number. And if you know anything about camp language, it was a low number. I think his number was 243. He met a woman named Scylla. Scylla had been deported to Auschwitz from Poland with her mother, her father, and her brother, and they immediately went to the the gas chambers. He met Scylla. He fell in love with her. In January of 1944, he tells her, gets a message to her, I'm going to get you out of here. And it took him six months, and he, he spoke fluent German, blonde hair, blue eyes. I met him when he was 89, and he got a, a, a Nazi officer's uniform. He got a gun. He forged documents, and I believe July 22, 1944, he walks into her part of the camp and asks for prisoner number such and such, and he literally marches her out of the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex, which is, at, I think, 40 square kilometers. They walk at night, they hide during the day, and he puts her with a Polish farm family, Polish Catholic farm family in southeastern Poland. He joins the uh, AKA, the Polish underground, the Army Krajowa. She, the front, you know, the front goes back and forth. She leaves and goes to Sweden after the front passes. He goes back to find her, and the family tells him she's dead because she had been sending packages from Sweden, and they thought if Scylla and Yerzy got together again, the packages would stop. Mm-hmm. And they tell her he's dead. She marries a survivor, comes to New York, and many Holocaust survivors that I know from Poland sometimes have someone who helps them in the house who happens to be Polish. She's sitting having coffee with this, 
her late this lady who's helping her in the home, and she's telling her the story, and she said he's dead, and the woman says, "No, he's alive. He was on Polish television. This is 1981 during martial law in Poland. They find his phone number. Martial law meant all foreign calls went through Warsaw. He picks up the phone, and it's Scylla. And he meets her for the first time in the Krakow airport, bringing 39 red roses for each of the years they were apart. His wife was convinced he was going to leave her. He did not. His wife passes on, her husband passes on, and they see each other 15 more times, either in America or in Poland. And the last time he went to visit her was to visit her grave at one of the Jewish cemeteries on Long Island. It's a true love story. Unbelievable. Stanley Stahl, she is the executive vice president of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. On this Yom HaShoah, we remind you to visit jfr.org. I assume you guys exist on donations, am I right? Yes, we do. People could donate on the website? Yes, they can. jfr.org, if you want to continue this Kiddush Hashem of um, helping Jews associated with JFR and and others, of course, uh, to help fund those who saved Jews during the Holocaust. Righteous Gentiles recognized by Yad Vashem who are being financially assisted by the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. Stanley, thanks so much for joining us on this day. Thank you for having us. J.M. and the A.M., Yom HaShoah Hagvura Thursday, day 12 in the counting of the Omer. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. More coming up on this Yom HaShoah 5778 at J.M. and the A.M. That was my conversation with Stanley Stahl, the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. Ruth Lichtenstein of Project Witness joined us on Yom HaShoah for a conversation about Holocaust education. Here's my conversation with Ruth Lichtenstein on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. I mentioned we'd be joined by uh, significant guests on the topic of Yom HaShoah. With us live via telephone is our good friend Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein. In addition to uh, publishing Hamodia, she is the publisher of the Hamodia newspaper. She is director of Project Witness, which uh, we've uh, outlined on this show many, many times. has had a profound effect, uh, not only in our community, but specifically on the younger people and others, of course, as well. Uh, but a profound impact on, um, on those educators that are responsible for uh, shaping the thoughts and uh, shaping the opinion uh, and the knowledge of uh, the youngsters in our community. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me. Good morning. I appreciate you joining us. Could you remind us about your parents and where they spent World War II? My parents, um, both of them came from Poland. My father left Poland in 1940. Um hoping to be reunited with his wife and little boy uh, later on, and unfortunately it never happened. My mother was for five and a half years under the Nazis. She was 10 years old when the war broke out. She was 15 and a half when she was liberated in Warsaw on January 18, 1945. She, her brother, and two hours later, her brother was arrested by the Soviet army on a suspicion that he collaborated with the Nazis. They were reunited in Israel, then Palestine, two and a half years later. 
I am a proud child of two Holocaust survivors. No question about that. Speaking with Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein, you decided at some point as uh, the Jewish people, and especially the state of Israel with the brilliance of forming a Yom HaShoah and insisting that uh, people spend the day in deep thought about what happened during World War II, you decided to formalize things a bit more and to bring a formal program of education both to schools through textbooks and lectures and to the community in general through the work of Project Witness with educators and uh, with people in general in the community. Why was it so important to you with your background to formalize this educational process? I don't see it uh, as uh, a brilliant idea. I see it as a life mission. I uh, lost my father at a young age, and I realized at a very young age that uh, the survivor as the survivors uh, build a kind of uh, wall in front of them in order to pretend to us, the children, and to the rest of the world that everything is fine and let's go on with life. My mother spoke, my father wrote, and when I lost my father, I decided that I will try to continue his mission, and his mission was to educate the younger generation that we should not forget. So it wasn't a matter of Yom HaShoah. Uh, we know about the joke that, you know, the Ashkenazim have Yom HaShoah, and uh, some people think that we can remember one day a year and forget about the rest. Right. I do believe strongly that this is not the case. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein is with us. Is there anything that's going on in the world today in 2018 that to you, and I know you were not there, but based on all your research and all the stories, that to you sounds and looks similar to what was going on in Europe around the time of World War II? Absolutely. Unfortunately, we do see rise of anti-Semitism, not only in Europe, but here in the States. We... Um, I would say, would like to believe that we have enough challenges in life and therefore Holocaust education can go on the side. We would like to believe that in Europe it's bad. It is indeed very bad. If we look what happened, unfortunately, in France yeah. a few weeks ago when a Holocaust survivor was burned, murdered, burned uh, by her neighbor, younger neighbor, if we are looking at what happened in England with the Labour Party a leader and is open anti-Semitism. But let's concentrate and see what is going on here in the United States. According to the ADL, anti-Semitic incidents rose 86% in the United States in 2017. If we check what's going on on campuses, the numbers are bad. Anti-Semitic incidents on campuses up 89%. We are talking about uh, harassment, vandalism, assault. We would like to believe that everything is okay, but everything is not okay, and there is a rise of anti-Semitism here in the United States, and we have to fight it, and we have to remember what happened uh, uh, over 70 years ago, 
close to 80 already, and we have to see what to do, that the younger generation at least should know what happened to their grandparents, or even if they are not descendants of Holocaust survivors. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein is with us. She's responsible for Project Witness. Uh, she publishes Hamodia on a daily basis. I know, as you just said, uh, that one day is not just one day, and I understand that it is all year round that we have to focus on the atrocities of uh, of the Holocaust. But but let's utilize today to end this conversation with a message. What would your message be to both young and old? on this Yom HaShoah? The, my message is that we, as Jews, we as individuals, we as a group, we have to remember. And we have to remember, because we believe in the whole and we say it every day, we have to remember because of what's going on around us today, and we also have to remember the positive end. Yeah. Let's look around and see how we rebuild the generation and how, you know, all around us, uh, orthodoxy is blossoming. We do have our challenges, but after all, we rebuild a generation. So this is on the positive side, but right. we cannot ignore yeah. this challenge as well. It's interesting because um, you grew up at a time when very few people had grandparents. And today, I'm sure you take unbelievable nachas when you go to weddings and events and you see four and sometimes even five generations together. I can tell you that we were very lucky if we had grandparents. I was one of the lucky ones. But today, it's a different story. Yeah. And Baruch Hashem for what we have. But at the same time, let's remember, we definitely should continue to be aware, very much aware of what's going on around us. We'll continue to remind everybody about your great work. Uh, thank you so much today for joining us. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein, publisher of Hamodia, director of Project Witness, always with a strong message about uh, 70 years ago, whether to, whether it is Yom HaShoah or not. That was my conversation with Ruth Lichtenstein. Anya Mashawah, in addition to both Stanley Stahl and Ruth Lichtenstein, we spoke with Leon Goldenberg, who each year has a unique presentation and really an incredible way to get us into the spirit of Yom Shoah, to remember how lucky we are, to remember what has happened in the past. Leon Goldenberg joined me recently. Anya Mashawah for this conversation. Here it is on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Unbelievable. JM and AM Thursday. Ah! Yom HaShoah, and I say, ah, uh, the way I just said, because I realize that Leon Goldenberg has arrived, and I thank him. Don't mean to uh, jump him on the air like this, but uh, he's been gracious enough to come in and uh, spend a few minutes on this Yom HaShoah. Last year he was here and in an appearance that made quite an impact on this audience, and we were hoping that we'd get his feelings and thoughts as we now stand at Yom HaShoah 5778. Just bring that microphone to you, Leon, and Leon Goldenberg, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me again. Um, one of the 
so many different topics, so many different uh, aspects to Yom HaShoah and to, uh, in your case, being the child of survivors. Yes. I posed this question the other day to one of our guests about growing up in the quote-unquote, this is not an evaluation, this is a reality because we're in America, growing up in comparatively the lap of luxury, right? No matter who you are in America, you are growing up in the lap of luxury compared to, compared what, to, what, compared to what your parents went through. Not what they went through, what they lived. In other words, we have this, this memory. Right, even what they lived, right, correct. Right. You know, everybody says, oh, it's so nice in the old country. Right. It was, it was not so nice. Some people had it better and some people had it tougher. More people had it tougher there than have it here. It's just that most people didn't realize how poverty-stricken they were. And you know, it, it's interesting. When I, would, yeah. when I would bring certain things to my father's attention and his background, you're familiar with all the things he went through in his life. When I would bring difficult situations to his attention, not that he would make light of it, but in his mind he would compare it to what was really serious situations right. in his childhood. And that's what you're alluding right. to. Right. Just to give you one story from yeah. my mother. She was born in 1916. When she was four years old, her grandfather passed away. And when her grandfather passed away, her parents sent her to her grandmother so that the grandmother shouldn't be alone. And four of her uncles had come to America, aunts and uncles had come to America, and they were sending back a dollar a month to my uh, great-grandmother. And that made her into an usher, into a rich person. So she built this big house. And my mother came from a, a town, not a tiny town, but a small town. Although the shul, when I went there, looks like it holds 500 people, called Kirahas. In, uh, when she was born, it was Hungary, then Czechoslovakia, Soviet Union, and today the Ukraine. So she was living with her grandmother. And her grandmother, because she became rich on this dollar a month that was coming, I'm not sure from all of the aunts and uncles, I'm not, decided she had to give back. So in her house, in her kitchen, she had a stew cooking all day for people that came from the little villages, the real little villages, the Derflach, where the unemployment was probably 80%. And the poverty was enormous. And these people used to come every single day to Kirahas and to the other larger towns, going door to door, asking people for a, uh, a turnip, a potato, not, God forbid, a piece of meat. Right. Although my grandfather was a butcher and he used to give them, he used to take the fat. I don't know how, you know how we would look at it today, but then it was a big deal. He took all the fat and he cut it into pieces so that everybody can have a meat, a fleshiga, a cholent. Otherwise, they wouldn't even have, there was no such thing as putting meat and chicken in. And some of my mother's memories of helping her grandmother serve were that people who walked around all day, all day long, getting a potato here, a turnip there, something else there. You know, if they were lucky, they would get, you know, a pepper or something. Some of them came to town with rags tied around their feet because they didn't have shoes. And they walked sometimes two to three miles just to get to town. And then they walked around town all day going from person to person 
to collect what they could. Just to survive. Just to survive. And whatever they brought home, that one meal, whatever they brought home, that was the only meal that the family ate every single day. And if they didn't succeed, there was no food. And so my great-grandmother had the stew cooking all day. And these uh, beggars, and that's what they were, but they all, you know, most of them were married with families. It's not, you know, uh, somebody that was drunk or something would come there, and my mother at four, five years old would serve them the stew, and, you know, from this big pot. That's what poverty was like. How old was your mother when she arrived in this country? Um, she was. She arrived in 1949, so she was 43. She was with two children uh, that were born in the DP camps, uh, where my mother met my father, and, uh, and then they arrived here in 19... They got married in 1947, and two years later, they came with two kids already. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Leon Goldenberg is here on this Yom HaShoah. Not to make too much light of it, but you know, in, in, in the world of Pesach programs and massive kosher supermarkets with a lot of kosher meat, right? <laughs> That's for sure. Do you remember her ever talking about that? The differences, the the how on earth could people complain when they have all of this? Any of that ever she come up? She didn't talk about that. We were definitely, uh, growing up as a young child, we were definitely just, uh, again, my, my we, they arrived in 1949. Right. Uh, I'm a landlord, so this is a little difficult to talk <laughs> about. But rent control had just come in, and it was impossible to get an apartment. And you actually had to pay landlords money under the table to get an apartment. This was in what neighborhood? We lived in the Bronx. We had an uncle uh, that arrived before the war, and he brought the entire family to the Bronx. And eventually, most of us scattered from there. But we arrived in the Bronx, and my parents got an apartment that was $40 rent. And you had to pay $2,000 under the table to the landlord to get the apartment. For the right to rent it. For the right to rent it, because it was rent-controlled, and he said rent should be higher. My father's first job, which he got from somebody that came from the old country and was in a grocery store, where she told her husband, even though the store was open on Shabbos, but because my father was the Rav's nephew, that he will not work on Shabbos, and he still has to hire him. And she had come from a very prominent uh, family, and eventually she became Shomer Shabbos again. So my father worked, went in Shabbos night, worked till an hour before Friday to make $15 a week and paid $40 rent. So he paid, so it was pretty poverty, but there was always, I guess we didn't realize what we were lacking because it seemed normal. And, Some would say you were lacking nothing. But. Right, right. But she she always had tremendous gratitude to America for giving them the opportunity to come, to succeed in America. Not, you know, uh, wildly succeed, but to bring up a family. And she would compare it to, you know, there were times when she would compare it to what went on and when she would talk about the poverty that existed. Although my mother's family... Uh, I would say lower, lower middle income, or you know, or just above poverty, but not you know they never lived in poverty because my grandfather's a butcher, so there was always you know right. food in in the house, and they uh, had chickens in the back, and they 
uh, grew vegetables. So it was uh, in relatively a, a uh, nice existence for what really went on in a lot of those areas. Leon Goldenberg is here. Now, uh, you said it earlier, so I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway for the purpose of the conversation. You have visited a lot of Eastern Europe, correct? I've visited a lot of Eastern including Europe. the hometowns of your parents. Yes, and yes. including, I assume, the concentration camps. Yes, including going back with my mother. I took my mother back in 1995. So she would have been how old in 1995? She, she was, was how old? In she was uh, 79. And she goes where with you? So if we go first. Her, we land in Budapest, and then you have to take these. In those days, you had to take a car from Budapest. There was no way to cross the border. Uh, there was no flights into into those areas. It's still not. People still go through Budapest, and her town, her hometown, was very disturbing for her. Um, I had been there four years earlier, and the cemetery. And my my grandfather had this chus. I hate to use this word, of dying. When they told him that his uh, one of his sons had been beaten to death, actually by a capo on the Russian front, and when they uh, gave him the news, he had a very bad heart, and he he just collapsed. He, he collapsed. He got very sick. In a few days, he was mm-hmm. gone. Why was he lucky? Because for the, they put up his matzeva to twenty-one days, the monument. And for the shaloshim for the thirtieth day, which you know is a major uh, issue by us, uh, they were already in the ghetto. They were already taken to the ghetto. So he had this chus. He had the privilege of, of course, Yisrael of being buried as a Jew. And her last memory was going to the Matzeva Stelling to when they put up the the monument, and she had four grandfathers buried right next to my grandfather. And that was, you know, she always used to go to her grandfather's, you know, to 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 daven, to pray for for them, for everything that was going on. And so now there were five grandfathers next to each other, and she was insisting that she would know where they were buried. And I was there, and there were houses and roads that didn't exist, <laughs> and stones from the cemetery had been taken out and used as uh, sidewalks and used as uh, in in as landscaping in people's front yards. I saw one actually in a foundation of a house. So I knew it wouldn't be there. And the people that came from there, the children, we built a gate all around the cemetery. But we could only build around what, uh, you know, where the road was. And we didn't know exactly where it began and ended. There were only a half a dozen stones left. And when I brought her back, and she was sure she was going to be able to tell me, here's my father, here's Zayda Leib, here's Zayda Shmuel Yehuda, and put them all there and line them up one after, and she couldn't recognize it because this road didn't exist, that house didn't exist. She was very, very upset. And then we went to her house, how far was it from the cemetery? Not far. And, of course, the people say, no, we're living here, generations, you know, which is bogus. They wouldn't let us in. And she couldn't be 100% sure it was the house because, it was, you know, a little paint, a little this. And she's insistent that, no, my father, my grandfather, were living here, you know, forever. She was very upset. And she said, well, let's leave. And we ran. 
We, we literally left Kirahaz. But when we arrived in Auschwitz a couple of days later, where she had spent time in, uh, you know, as a uh, as a prisoner, when we arrived there, she was like very calm, and I was there with my daughter, one of my daughters, my youngest daughter, and my niece, and she took us through the barracks where she was in to show us exactly where she was. She remembered the whole thing. Yes, Tzelaga which is how she called it. She told us stories that we didn't know at that point, that when it came Yom Kippur, my aunt who passed away uh, just over a year ago, uh, she was always the frumma one, even, you know, back home. But when she, And she had uh, gotten married, so she was living in a different city, Chost, for those that know it. So she came to Auschwitz. Right? Yeah, Chost yeah. She came there a few days earlier, a few weeks earlier, a few days earlier, and when the other sisters arrived, the other three sisters, she was she was there waiting for them. And she was the oldest sister, and she was in charge. And when it came Yom Kippur, she said, we're not eating. And one of my aunts said, what do you mean we're not eating? We get this little soup, one piece of bread that you get that you share with us. And she said, it's Yom Kippur, we're not eating. And they didn't eat. And they didn't eat. Um, there was another woman that passed away very recently, who uh, told me she came to she came to my mother's funeral. She came to um, my uh, to the shiva, and she said they were thirty five to forty young girls in the camp in the same bunk with my mother and her sisters. And when I say young, these are girls that were 14, 15 years old whose families had been wiped out. They're separated from their fathers if they were alive. They're separated from their brothers, but their mothers and any sisters were killed out, and they were all alone. And you can imagine at that age being in a camp. And my mother and her sisters became the then mothers to take care of these women. I remember you telling us this. How do you explain... Her calm at Auschwitz. I, I really can't. I really can't. I, I wish I could tell you that. You just observed it. I just observed it. She just talked about uh, never what she did for other people, about what people did for her. How the 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 night that they fasted, the blockmaster put away soup for the women that fasted. Wow. How the blockmaster, one, she, uh, she had warned him not to go to a certain place, and the four sisters were taken, and she comes into the other place where it happened to be her sister-in-law was the blockmaster there, and she said, you stupid Hungarian girls, didn't I tell you not to come here? Do you know what this is? And, you know, they were innocent, and they said, no. He says, this is where they take you, and they're burning you tomorrow. They're gassing you tomorrow from this. And then she says to her sister, I cannot let these girls die. They're young, they're vibrant, they're strong. I cannot let them die. And she snuck them out. And she snuck them out and brought them back. These are some of the stories that she told us then, even though she spoke about the war, but, you know. Right. Uh, and you stood in the actual barracks that she yes. stayed in. Um, did she express how lucky she was 
to have survived? Did she understand, and I use that word in quotation marks, just how the odds, how high the odds were against someone in her situation actually surviving? She, uh, there was, when she was sitting shiva for one of her sisters, one of the four sisters, my nephew came over and he says to her, Bobby, Bobby, tell me, what did you do that you survived? Oh. And my mother looks at him and says, what did I do? He says, but Bobby, there must have been something, something that you did. <laughs> I remember he was like, you know, he was so... Probing. <laughs> yeah, probing. And she says, and she was at that time well past 90, and he says, I? What did I do? And again, he asked her a third time, and I wanted to smack him, you know? <laughs> and she says, I? And then she looks up. He, he wanted me to survive. He wanted me to survive, and he made the decision that I would survive. And do you know why? Do you know why he wanted me to survive? He gave me one purpose in life, and that was to bring Dyrus, to bring generations on this world. And then she looked at me and said, did I do okay? I said, besides him, you did phenomenal. <laughs> Leon Goldenberg is here. Always an amazing presentation all the time, but especially on Yom HaShoah. Um, she passed away at the age of? 99 and a half. Wow. And her oldest sister? The one that led the family passed away at 102 and a half. Unbelievable. Who would have thought that with everything they were and going through? I have through one granddaughter named after both of them. Unbelievable. Um, and the last sister I'm going to visit Sunday, she's not doing well. But there's still a sister. Around. There's still one sister. She's 96, and uh, she lives in Boulder, Colorado. And Sunday I'm going to visit her. And uh, where were you in elementary school? In Tarasamus. The reason I ask, and I always make this point, and we made this point a little earlier with one of our guests, I, I assume the majority of kids your age did not have grandparents. It was so strange. We didn't realize that you could have that a That you're grand- supposed to have right, a Right, that your parent could have a parent. Right. right. It was just there were only two people that I knew that had grandparents. That had a grandparent. And we thought that was strange. You actually have a grandmother. I had a cousin that had a grandmother. And when your mother was in her late 90s, she must have been at Simcha's with multiple generations. With multiple really multiple generations, right. I mean, five she or only, four? She only got the four. The four. Her, fourth, her first great-grandchild had gotten married before she passed away. Uh, he was actually married a year, but did not have at that point a great-grandchild. Well, my mother-in-law, who's only 90... Uh, last night we were at a vart uh, for her fifteenth great grandchild to get. That's going to be getting married. Her fifteenth great grandchild. She has. I'm not even really sure, but I, <laughs> I would say at least fifteen to twenty great great grandchildren. So you are always at events with five generations. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we yes. painted the picture earlier. How rare it is. Not for you. <laughs> not, not, not anymore. But for them. For us growing up, it was, uh, I'll tell you a cute story. I was in second grade, and I got friendly with a kid. And in Tarasemis, the mothers used to come. My mother used to come also and, and serve lunch, prepare lunch, help set it up and serve lunch. And I got friendly with this boy, and his mother came to uh, 
uh, serve lunch. And after lunch, she says, this is my new friend. This is Leon. And she asked me this question. Where do you live? And she walks away. And I said, where did your mother learn to speak a fluent English? <laughs> he says, what do you mean? He says, your mother speaks a fluent English. Said, my mother, my mother was born here. I said, there's no such thing as a mommy born in America. There's no such thing. There are no mommies born in America. I had never heard a grown-up speaking without an accent. So the idea of, of grandparents, non-existent, non-existent. Unbelievable. I'm going to add that uh, that no, no mommy grew up in America to my repertoire as I right. try to remind people in the younger generation that they don't realize what they have. They don't realize. That they're, that they're at these events, and it's a natural, not only one grandparent, that all their grandparents, grandparents are, are there. there right right nobody had we went to there was there was in our family there were friends that were of the previous generation that my mother would help take care of you know uh sometimes cook for them or whatever but they were you know who didn't have children who never had children or maybe their children died you know in the war they were just an anomaly anybody that was that was gray an anomaly. Have any of your uh, have any of your mother's great grandchildren been to Auschwitz to visit? Uh, I don't. A few of them probably. They yes, probably or yes, have already. Yes, I'm actually working on a trip for. I was going to do it this summer. Promise with camps, you got to plan in advance. Right. But next summer, I'm planning to take my children and the older grandchildren, which there are, you know, quite a few, uh, on a trip to. The old city and to Auschwitz and everything right. else, and uh, take the entire family, uh, at least the ones that are debating, but probably somewhere over 12. Uh, you know, maybe if, if some of them are a little bit younger but are, are more mature, I would take them also and take them all, let them see where we come from, how they lived, and how they suffered, and how they came out. And I think I had a normal upbringing. There was never a time that I felt that my mother, she would no, always... Nothing lacking, right? Nothing lacking. I had to eat. Do you know what I would have done for that, for a peel, and you're not eating your... Uh, <laughs> oh, so, boy. Oh, boy. But that was, that was about it. There you, was no, you better finish everything on right. your plate, right? And that was the only time right. that she... I mean, she spoke about the war. My father right, did but that she referenced it directly to you. Right? To, to me. Right. Other than that, there was no <laughs> no such thing as, as... In other words, I didn't feel deprived. I didn't feel I was living in some sort of a horror, and that I had to be protected because... She definitely uh, didn't let us go to camps, and which, but we were poor. Right. We couldn't really afford it. Leon Goldenberg, you're one of the community leaders that always reminds us how important it is to remember, and I really appreciate you coming by today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Leon Goldenberg, who visited us on Yom HaShoah here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up all day long here at uh, NSN including our live lunch. It'll happen between 11 and 1 o'clock Eastern Time right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.
טוב שמחו ולכונו ולכונו להוידויס הטוב שמחו ולכונו ולכונו
Oh, no way. Oh, no way.